You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green Smith, episode 439. You can find information on anything referenced in this episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP439. Oh, well, hey there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing, or your partner asks what's bothering you, and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Well, hello, pod people. Amy here, and I am so excited because we're going to start a new sort of mini-series. You know I like to do little chunks of episodes that are geared around one singular topic. So we just rounded off our last series around body image. So be sure to catch that, that those are episodes 436, 37, and 38. So last week I started talking about some real actionable things that you can do around fostering a really healthy body image and and some things that we don't even quite register that could be helpful. And then also how to communicate with well-meaning folks in your life who might say things that are really steeped in diet culture or in beliefs around body image that you're trying to shed and let go of and how do you actually address that. So be sure to catch that that whole series. And now we're going to be moving into some conversations more around relationships. So this week, I'm going to give a call and see if I can catch my friend Giovanna Caposa. And she talks a lot about love addiction and her personal experience with it. But then she's also kind of termed this or coined this term lovesick that is sort of the a little bit of a lighter version of full-on love addiction. So I really want to get her thoughts on that. She also is extremely astute at attachment styles, which if you're not familiar with it, attachment styles are how we view attachment to other people inside our interpersonal relationships, our intimate relationships. So I definitely want to pick her brain around that. And then stay tuned for next week. I'm going to have a good, good friend of mine on the show. I cannot wait to have her back. I had her on years and years and years ago. Her name is Alana Pratt. She's an intimacy expert. So you will not want to miss that. So let me tell you a little bit about Giovanna before I give her a ring and hopefully I can catch her. She is the founder of Love Well Coaching. She's an author and herself a recovering love addict. And she talks in her book, Love Well, about the journey that she went on that so many of us can relate to. And after a lifetime of really searching actively for the one, she realized that she really truly needed to discover herself and finding herself first if she really wanted to to find that lasting love. And she is a certified coach, a body-mind therapist, facilitator, functional medicine practitioner, homeopath, yoga teacher, energy healer, like pretty much all of the things. And she coaches women everywhere to love themselves and the journey, not just the destination. I think for so many of us, especially those of us who grew up in extremely religious households, or who happened to be Gen Xers or elder millennials, there was such a strong focus on being partnered. Like if you weren't in a partnership, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, you must be damaged. And and all of that is really rooted in patriarchal norms and a lot of antiquated notions. So 
I am super excited to give her a call. Hopefully she's available. I know she's been really promoting her book lately and she's got stuff going on. So let's give her a ring and see if she can help us uh, identify some stuff here around love addiction. Hello. Giovanna. Hey, what's up? It's Amy. Oh my gosh. Hey girl, how are you doing? <laughs> I am so good. Uh, listen, I'm over here. I'm hanging out with the audience and we've been looking at, at ideas around love addiction. And I know you literally wrote the book on it. <laughs> and I thought I've got to call you up. See if you have a handful of minutes to kind of chat with us. Are you free? I am totally free. I just literally finished putting pink dye in my hair because I'm going to Miami next week and I wanted my hair to match my book. Oh, <laughs> you're so on brand, girl. <laughs> okay, but I got time. It's got to soak for like 35 minutes. I'm good. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Let's let's do it then. So I know in your work, you've talked a lot about this idea uh, of your singlehood being a waiting room. And my guess around this is, and I, I've seen this with some of my clients and students, is that it's almost like they're waiting for their life to begin and sort of all the things that they want to experience, all the things that they imagine are going to bring them fulfillment. They're like, it'll happen once I'm partnered. Right. It, it, am I onto something there? How do you define yeah. it? Yeah, it's that idea. And this is something I picked up, obviously, with myself. It's this idea that, you know, you're going through the motions in life, even even the career um, ambitions and the trips with the girlfriends and, you know, the selfies online and all the like, I'm living my best life. Right. But internally, you're you are almost using your singleness as a waiting room for when you're going to find the person and then your life is going to start. And then, and then, and then, and if you're at the point where, you know, what I call the love addiction that I call lovesick, then you are potentially serial dating in that time. You're on the lookout, right? You're like, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? And there's really this sense of my life will start when, and subconsciously there might also be when I meet this person, then I'll be rescued from fill in the blank, being lonely, my miserable life, not having any fun, financial stuff. There's, there's this undercurrent that can also be there. And do you think, I, I kind of speculate that a lot of that is how we've been taught about love and the examples that we've seen in media, you know, I'm thinking back to my own experience. I grew up with so many messages that were enveloped by religion. So a lot of really antiquated notions of gender and what's going to happen when you are partnered and, and then subsequently start getting fed with all of these Disney ideas of love, which are literally always rescued. You know, they're always totally. being rescued. And, and so it, it, I want to bring that up because I think for so many of us, we're not, we're not, taught that there are other ways to be fulfilled outside of an intimate partnership, especially women. So it's like you, you need to find this in order to be valuable, to be fulfilled. Absolutely. 100%. And you would be surprised at how entrenched a lot of that is, right? So even myself, you know, back when, and the time period I talk about in my book where I was in my, you know, um, middle to late thirties, even then where I thought I was this woke, conscious, you know, spiritual feminist woman, these very things that you just said were operating totally in the underground because they become part, whether it's your familial upbringing, like I'm Italian. Mm -hmm. I was literally raised like, you know, my big fat Greek wedding, like your purpose in life is to grow up, save money, have baby, get married, have babies keep saving money, raise the bait. Like that's it. Yeah. And then you die. Right. Like that's, a, that's the culture. And I'm, and, the and you better be, you better be fulfilled by that. 
That's and you, your- and you, and don't complain. Don't you dare complain because children are God's gift and your husband is God's gift and your life is God's gift. And don't you dare complain. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm the youngest of four girls, right? Oh, wow. And I watched them each go through this thing, which was you meet the guy, you get married, hopefully in that order, you have the baby, right? Didn't happen for everybody in that order, but like, you know, you do this thing. And I remember being, this, this story didn't actually end up in the book, but I remember being 14 and my eldest sister, the one that closest to me, so seven years, so seven, 12 and 15 year age gap. Whoa. She was getting married. I was 14. I had this purple taffeta dress on that I just was like, thought it was hideous. And I remember 14, I remember looking at her going, is this going to be my life? Right. Like, is this, is this what I'm, is this what's expected of me? Like, I don't want to do this. I want the love of my life and I want that big romance, but I don't want this. I want to travel. So I was rebelling against all of that my entire life. And the ideas that you just mentioned so deeply entrenched the modeling I got from society, from family, from culture. What did I do? Even though I bought my first relationship self-help book at 19, what did I do? I ended up almost marrying my a version of my dad. I I was repeating the same cycles. And even when I left that, you know, relationship, I continued this. It was almost like it's, it's pathological really. And, and we'll, and you see from the book that it is pathological. Like I realized with the help of a coach and a therapist that I, I had what we now know is called love addiction. And it's this addiction to this illusion or delusion of romantic love saving you. And it's, I mean, there's so many layers in there of stuff that, you know, you have to work through that I worked through, but I still went on to repeat these things. And I even say it in my book, I I talk about like, blame it on Walt Disney. I hope I don't get sued by Disney, (laughs) (laughs) but there is this cultural thing and, and, and not just the culture you were born into, but it's societal, like how we are um, portrayed as women in movies and in TV shows, et cetera. And even how much emphasis there is on what we look like, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking lately, and I had even a discussion with my mom about this of how I would do my wedding differently. So I've been married for fuck, like 23 years, something like that. We've been together about 25 and uh, thank you. I, (laughs) and I think back to what I would do differently. First of all, I would never fucking take his name. Okay. I would never fucking wear white, right? Like that's a piece of you need to be pure and chaste and like how you need, how you are a desirable individual. I would never have my dad give me away. Like that is so rooted in being a piece of property. So it's, it's, here's my daughter for some cows, some cows. Right. (laughs) And we think about that. And those are some of the, it's the ultimate gaslighting because those are the things that are heightened as far as romanticization of relationships. Like, of course, my dad's going to give me away. I would never fucking let my husband ask for my hand. No, 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 no. It's nobody's fucking hand to give away except mine. You can fuck all the way off. But, but we have romanticized that. Right. And like, oh, how precious. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's giving away our agency. That's giving away our autonomy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious for you because again, I would prior to even holding that sort of a, a belief or saying I would do these things differently. I would have absolutely said I'm a, you know, a bleeding heart feminist and, you know, equal rights and all of these things. Yet I was still bought into a lot of those societal narratives that romanticize giving away your agency as a woman. So I'm curious for you. So, so basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that your term of love sick is synonymous with love addiction. Is that right? Yeah. It's okay. basic. I mean, love addiction has a spectrum. Like we're talking the little like teenage girl love sick crush that goes a little overboard to like blend close. We're boiling bunnies. Like it's, it's on a spectrum. Got it. And most of the women that you know, or drawn to me or to work with me or even to read the book, they're, they're very high functioning women. They're not Glenn Close, right? And sure. they will attract, they're very high functioning. 
And there's, there's just what I mentioned before, this lack of awareness that all this unconscious stuff is either blocking them from getting the relationship they want or blocking them in their current relationship. And there's, it's rooted in this, you know, fear of abandonment and all of this, you know, childhood stuff that's really lurking there. So lovesick is the term that I took on, like it's love addiction light, right? Just to, just is how it manifested for me. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question around this that, that I, I genuinely don't want you to take offense to, but I'm curious about what your perspective might be. I think that there are sometimes terms that are floating around in the personal development sphere that amplify women feeling like there's something wrong with them. Oh, so preach girl. <laughs> for, for example, <laughs> imposter syndrome. When we say something like you have a syndrome, which first of all, it's not a fucking syndrome. So it's why I, I refer to I it as, <laughs> as, as a complex, you know, it's something that you are, it's a, it's a thought process. So I admit that I'm a bit apprehensive to say you're sick or you're love sick, because I don't necessarily want women to think here's another thing that I have to identify as I have a problem or an illness or a syndrome. Um, curious what your Absolutely. thoughts are on that. I agree with you 100%. And I am not about develop. Like I don't, I do not want my readers to read my book and then start labeling themselves. As, I mean, if you, if you want to identify with what's written and you need to get help with what's written, you can do that. I think labels are useful as far as, um, I have asthma. I need a puffer, right? When you take on the whole, I'm an asthmatic and everything that goes along with that, that's different, right? So I, I'm not a believer in identifying with the label. And you, I told, as soon as you started talking, I'm like, I know where she's going with this. And I <laughs> so agree with you because I'm part of a lot of different Facebook groups, right? That deal with relationships or love or whatever. And I'm in this one particular group that talks a lot about attachment theory and attachment mm -hmm. theory and attachment trauma is something I deal with a lot. I, I love relationship sciences and how they have helped us understand relating and understand ourselves better. But I see it all the time in that group. Women are just like, I'm an anxious attachment. Yep. I'm an avoidant. And they wear it like this label. And it's like, even your label of, I don't know, whatever astrological sign you are, even that is just a freaking label that you're supposed to transcend. So I am so not a fan of taking something on as a label and wearing it as your identity, because the entire point of you, even just identifying, let's say with the term lovesick, it's like, mm -hmm. wow, it's like, yeah, maybe I have a form of love addiction. The only thing that ever served purpose for me was actually to go out and learn about myself and get help with what was showing up. I didn't put on a t-shirt saying I'm a love addict. And, and this is where, and I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of slack for this, but this is where I have a little tiny bit of um, a problem in the, you know, hello, my name is, and that's your entire yeah. identity yeah. because you're, and I, and trust me, when I was told that I was a love addict, first of all, first of all, I laughed. Cause I was like, how could you be addicted to love? Like, it's a beautiful thing. Like, of course I'm addicted to love. Everybody's addicted to love, right? Like it was almost like a joke. And right. then when my, you know, my coach at the time, who was actually also like a, she used to be a therapist. She became a coach when she really actually spelled it out for me and showed me the patterns. I was like, Oh my God. Like she's well, right. Like well, the thing, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then I went to research and then I went to like CODA meetings, right? Codependency anonymous meetings, which are so helpful and so valuable for so many people, but I couldn't stay there because every single week I was asked to reinforce this identity and label as if that's all of who I am. Right. And it's right. not all of who I am. So just the long answer to your question is I couldn't agree with you more. There's value in certain, again, labels or like diagnoses, like you have asthma. Cause it's like, great. I know I have asthma. I'm going to go and get a puffer. Right. Yeah. But to th that's it. Like that's the extent of it is so that you can go out and learn about yourself and get help. But when it becomes who you are and your identity, to me, that's another way that we, we hide behind stuff. Even that the example you gave of, you know, I've been on coaching calls, whether it's I'm coaching or whether I'm the coachee and it's with my coach and it's like, oh, well, I, you know, I, yeah, I have that imposter syndrome and it's like, 
okay, but it's been five years now and you're still having this imposter syndrome. Like, why are you still, why is that still your thing? Like, why are you still attached to that? Right. And I agree. I agree with what you're saying. We do that too much. And I, but I just, I also think that's a little part of human behavior of how we, you know, we use sometimes these identities to just say like, almost like you said, to diagnose ourselves and then the buck stops there. It's like, oh, well, I'm woke. I know that I have this thing. Look, I'm telling you, I have this thing. But it's like, no, our job is to actually go deeper to transcend the label, to transcend even the diagnosis or whatever it is. And, and understand that we as humans are so much more than that. Right? So, so much more. I love that you said that. I've, I too have always had a little bit of a kickback around the claiming of I am this. I, I, as far as addiction goes, and I'm definitely not a specialist. And I, I've had a lot of conversations with my best friend about that. Who's, who is in recovery and is sober. And so I've, I've, I'm able to understand a little bit more of what that's about because it's counteracting an unbelievable amount of denial that you exactly that you have to get through to get to that place to actually say, okay, I do really have a problem. So I, I definitely understand that, but I completely concur with you about our, whatever you say after the words I am begins to lock in that identity. So I talk a lot, obviously, you know, I talk a lot about people pleasing and being a perfectionist and caring about what other people think. And so if you continue to say, I am a perfectionist, or I am always concerned with what other people think, you cement that into reality, as opposed to saying, I'm working on relinquishing my grip on people pleasing, or I'm working on letting go of love addiction, or I'm actively fighting against love addiction. I also heard something that, that put sort of this, this naming thing into perspective for me. And it was somebody talking about having cancer and having the identity of cancer and saying, and chose to say instead, I have cancer. It does not have me. And I loved that idea of like, okay, no, I happen to have this thing in my life, but it does not have me. It doesn't have all of me. And I would think that that could be a similar parallel with love addiction that it's like here I had these tendencies here are some of the behaviors or the patterns that I followed and I'm actively fighting against that and making decisions over and over and over again to change that paradigm so I'm curious for you and for people listening who who maybe go oh no that's not me or no of course I want to be partnered but I don't have a disordered way of being in a relationship or anything like that can you talk a little bit about what are some of the behaviors that love addiction or or you know love addiction light love sickness kind of shows shows up as I love that and I love that you pointed especially at the beginning of that on the denial piece, because you're right. Standing up and saying that when you're in recovery of any kind is about combating that denial. And I, I, I cannot even tell you how thick the denial was on my end. Like even after I heard this and even after I got that gut punch of realization of, holy shit, this is actually me. I didn't like it. I'm like, I don't want to be called that. Like, what is that's gross? Like, I don't want to say that I have that or go to codependent anonymous and be like, ew, ew, you know, total, total denial. So there was a power in me actually sitting with myself and like, I'm a researcher. So when, when someone tells me something, I dive into the research. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I dove in and there was a power in me saying, oh my God, I'm, I, I'm a love addict. I, you know, oh my, like, well, this is, oh my God, this is me. And the power in that was exactly what you just said that I could, I had to stop denying it before I could actually get help with it. So super, super powerful in that. So what are some of the, so, and this is actually, by the way, why, like if you go on my Instagram or my LinkedIn or anywhere, like nowhere does it say I help love addicts recover. (laughs) Like nowhere. It says, I, you know, help you deal, heal with codependency and uh, toxic attachment styles and et cetera, et cetera, because people don't necessarily um, respond to that label. They want to be labeled that also sometimes that label isn't even the right label. And it's not about the label. It's not about that. It's, are you 
manifesting like what you work with a lot, right? Is codependency, right? Is that manifesting? Are you a constant people pleaser? Are you putting up with relationship after relationship with toxic behavior? Are your fears of abandonment really ruling you in your relationships? Or contrastly, are you the person that gets involved in the relationship? And as soon as it gets serious or intense, you feel yourself shutting down and pulling away. So there's all these ways in which it manifests, mostly what is labeled love addiction, right? If you go through and if anyone wants a great resource for this beyond, beyond me, <laughs> who's an expert in this field, who I love, Pia Melody literally wrote the book on this. It's, she's amazing, but it, it leans more towards someone who has an anxious uh, attachment style, right? Someone who is really has this entrenched fear of abandonment. And this was you know, this is not, again, this is where I hate the labels, right? It's not because you're broken. It's not because you need fixing. It's because somewhere in your developmental years, something happened. It could have been something minor. It could have been something major, but something happened where you processed in your nervous system that there was a fear of abandonment from your caregivers. And that gets so entrenched. Like I'm sure, you know, anything that happens between zero and seven years old, it's like, that's your modeling. And that gets so entrenched that when you get into a relationship with someone, suddenly the tiniest thing, like, you know, you get into a fight on whether or not you want to see this movie or that movie. And suddenly you're like, I hope he's not, I hope he's not mad at me. I hope, you know, I hope everything's okay. And And then maybe he's like a little slow returning your text message. And you're like, he didn't text me back. And you find yourself maybe giving up pieces of yourself right, to keep that relationship in your mind as safe and untouched and, and secure, right? Because that's your way of trying to make it secure. The unfortunate part about that is that usually someone that has this type of style with all these, you know, so-called symptoms, right? And there's more, there's more than that. But someone that has that style, they they inevitably will draw in the person who is on the opposite side, who is more an avoidant. Sure. An avoidant attachment style gets really threatened by engulfment and losing themselves. And so they'll push away. So you can actually see there where that like kind of cat and mouse, you know, push and pull game starts to happen. And that's when the person who is anxiously attached, lovesick, whatever you want to call it, is, is going to start manifesting behaviors that are sort of really ultimately a self-betrayal to try and keep that going. And it could be really minor. It could be just, it could be like just obsessing where it's like your whole day, you're thinking about the person, you're obsessed, having obsessive thoughts you know, check in your phone. Did he, you know, did he answer me? Did he get back to me? Did he say anything? And then as soon as you get that contact, that little text message, the whatever, the phone call, it's like, it's like your whole nervous system calms down Hmm. and your nervous system is on high alert. Again, it's not because you're some silly, foolish lady and like, what's wrong with you? And like, you're just acting like a teenager. Your nervous system is actually activated because you have this entrenched um, trauma, let's say around your attachment. And so it's not, it can't be helped. And like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this just to even let everyone listening feel better. Like the people that come to work with me, they're not these silly little teenage girls who are like, you know, the drama Queens that maybe you see on the reality shows. They're like doctors and lawyers and surgeons. And like, I'm talking like accomplished people. And there's so much shame around how we relate or, or not relate, right. Or how we show up in relationships or what just came out of my mouth or how did I just behave? Or I can't believe I just attracted that same kind of guy again. And I, you know, it, there's so much shame because it's like, well, I'm a, this is, this was me. I'm an intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. I like, for me, it was like, I, I was a coach. I'm like, I help people for a living. Like I was like, what? You know, and for the clients that come to me, it's like, I'm successful. I'm accomplished. Like I have a freaking home. I have a mortgage. Like I have children. Like (laughs) I like, you know, I'm kicking ass and taking names. And why, why can't I get this piece right? Yeah. And, and that shame is because we, we somehow inherently think something is wrong with us. And, and if you, you know, pick up the book, the beginning of the book, I dedicate the book to my reader, but I dedicate it to their inner child. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. because there's so many grown ass women walking around, but really it's that little girl in the oversized high heel shoes with mommy's dress on and the pearls that's actually running their love life. Right. And it's, it's, I mean, it's obviously like you can, you can hear by me, my passion around it. It's such a soft spot for me because this little girl shows up and she's wounded. Right. And often we, you know, we're embarrassed by her. We tell her to shut up. We tell her just, just go wait in the corner. Right. I want to talk to you, but that's where we got to start. You know, from uh there's so many things I want to say about this for first, just a little side note that, you know, we're using the pronoun of he, but it could be she, they, whoever you happen to be in anyone, a, in relationship with anyone. And, uh, but I will say that the sort of heteronormative message is the, around like the Disney princess and the prince, you know, that's sort of what we're absolutely con- contesting here. So, um, from a sort of a hypnotherapist standpoint, what you were talking about from, the ages of zero to seven, zero to eight, basically what's happening. If, if y'all haven't heard me talk about this before is that's, that is about the age that we develop the critical factor of the mind, the, the inner critic, so to speak. So what that means is, you know, we think about our inner critic being sort of a, you know, this really negative thing, but it also is what helps us discern if we should behave a specific way or what we should engage with. There are ways in which the inner critic actually helps keep us safe, but we don't develop that until the age of seven or eight. So what that means is for those formative years, that means that you, this is very hypno language, but it means you're highly suggestible. So any message that comes in gets embedded into the subconscious mind. So if you get messages of what like a good little girl is or a good person or what is deemed attractive or acceptable, or you start hearing people in your family talk about their bodies and you start to really develop all of these notions about, um, who you need to be. And that becomes embedded in your subconscious mind without any criticism, without critically assessing, oh, wow, I wonder if I really want to adopt this belief that I'm only valuable if I'm partnered, you know? And so, so I just wanted to outline that a little bit that it, and also for those of you who are parents to be really discerning about what you're sharing with kids, because I think there's ways in which we're kind of flipping of like, oh, they'll never remember. They'll never remember. And that stuff is incredibly ingrained. So before we continue on, I wanted to ask a quick favor from you. Do you ever listen to the pod? And I think this might happen for you where you think, damn, I really wish so-and-so could hear this. Maybe it's your coworker who could actually use a lesson or two on boundaries, or maybe it is a women's group that you're a part of where everyone is super on board for speaking up for themselves, but nobody really knows what that really sounds like. Okay, where well, here's where you come in. I have three battle-tested and badass keynote speeches that are ready to be delivered to your company, organization, group, association. So if you, your community, or anyone you know could benefit from me rocking the mic, like who couldn't use some new tools, right? Please send them over to amygreensmith.com slash speaking where you or they can message me directly about specific needs for the audience. Shocker, the three keynotes are focused around speaking up, contending with fear, and accessing enoughness. And all three of them can be delivered either in person or virtually, and of course can be completely customized for specific audience needs. So again, simply send them to amygreensmith.com dot com slash speaking where they can get in touch with me because listen it is time that women everywhere have the tools necessary to use their voice take up space and advocate for their wants needs and opinions like yesterday and if you end up orchestrating an opportunity for me to speak with your group you will officially get unlimited squeezes from me And I'm sure you're all in now. And be sure to let them know that I can always temper my <clears throat> colorful language if needed. And 
thank you. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this podcast. Let's Get Checked makes professional health testing super easy by letting you get tested without having to visit a healthcare provider. Well, testing for what, you might ask? Well, they have a huge array of at-home testing kits, including women's health, men's health, sexual health, and wellness kits. In fact, I did two of the women's hormone testing kits. And it could not have been easier. And then when I received the results, I was able to simply forward them onto my naturopath to get her thoughts. All you do is you simply choose your test online. It will be delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. And then once your sample arrives in the lab, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. Once your results are available, they'll be reviewed by a physician, and then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. And in some cases, a physician will be able to provide prescriptions to the pharmacy of your choosing. Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of accreditation. Let's Get Checked lets you avoid uncomfortable office visits by providing you with access to home testing and professional medical consultations without ever leaving your home. It has never been this simple to get tested. So get this. If you want to try a test from Let's Get Checked, all you got to do is go to trylgc.com slash bold truth to save a whopping 30% on your first test kit. 30%. Just use the code bold truth, all one word at checkout. That's bold truth to save 30% on your first test kit. Now let's jump back into today's topic. The other thing I wanted to mention is around the fear of abandonment. And I think that this is one of those that can be a real sliding scale. Because I think for many of us, I mean, even if we are to look at something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of our primary sense uh, human needs is is a belonging, is to be a part of a connected group. I think on some level, it's like, of course, we're all going to be afraid of being abandoned. All of us, because we yearn for connection and we yearn for intimacy. And I think we're (laughs) fighting back against that all the time with putting walls up. So where do you think the fear of abandonment and I, I have some some ideas, but I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are. Where fear of abandonment starts to sabotage relationships, starts to sabotage your own self-care or self-love, when does it kind of cross that line of, I'm not, I, I recognize that I'm wired for connection, but this is way beyond that. I'm trying to control or. Yeah, I love that. I love that you asked that and I'll I'll flip it for a second and go back to it. I love that you asked for that because there's also the, the flip side of that is the woman that's, you know, done this, what we're about to talk about right now, so many times that she stops trusting herself and her intuition. And then she's, she literally puts up a block to even the desire for wanting love and connection because she thinks that even just desiring the connection means that I'm codependent. I don't want to be codependent. It's like, no, 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 that's not codependency. Right? So, so it's I love like that you said o- that. I'll- overcorrecting. Yeah. Overcorrecting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the queen of overcorrecting over here. So <laughs> I love that you said it's a sliding scale because it is, I think it's part of the human condition that we not only want connection, but obviously there's going to be a fear around losing that connection. Like we know, like tribally speaking from when we were cave people, if you are pushed out of you know, the tribe and right. you're, and you're said, go into the wilderness, it's death. It's death. So it's ingrained in us that, you know, that connection keeps us safe. So where does it go wrong? Yes. <laughs> I love that you, you broke down that zero to seven, right? I call them the spongy years. Those are your spongy <laughs> yes. years because you're a big sponge and you just absorb anything and you don't have any critical thinking of like, oh, mom's just talking about her big butt because she's a little insecure and I'm not right. going to, you know, it's just like, well, mommy has a, just complaining about her big butt. I got a big butt too. Right. So I get it. Um, where it shows up in relationships where, again, I don't want to pathologize the whole thing to get, you know, get the label started, but when you find yourself um, making the other person and their needs or the need to keep the relationship going more important than your own needs 
for security, autonomy, self-esteem, um, feeling just safe in the relationship, whether it's physically or even emotionally safe. And you're, and it's that, that self-abandoning kind of starts. That's really when you know that you're heading into a worry of abandonment that's become toxic, right? That's become, and toxic to you, but also toxic to the relationship, right? Because now you're starting to hang on for dear life. And so I think for, for that's a, a good litmus test for people's, when do I know if it's just plain old, like, obviously, like, I love my partner. I, I don't want him to leave me. I love him. Right. And that's like a normal, like, I don't want that to happen. Right. But when my fear of that potentially happening, or what if it does happen, has me start to change my behavior. Mm. Right. So maybe I don't go out with my friends as often as I used to. Um, maybe I'm waiting to see how he and he or she or, or they, it doesn't matter who your love interest is answers and says, what are they going to say? And you're, and you're noticing hypervigilance almost around what might happen next. That's already a clue that your fear of abandonment is probably stemming from maybe a deeper issue than just like you said, Maslow's hierarchy uh, right. of needs and wanting that connection. Because it's natural to love someone and not want to lose them. That's normal. That's natural. That's not you having a fear of abandonment or like codependency or whatever. It's like, you love someone, you don't want to lose them. Sure. But when you start to sacrifice those pieces of yourself and your own life and your own needs and what's important to you in order to make the relationship, like the thing that's on the pedestal, that's right. kind of your first clue that you're getting more into that other side of the spectrum where this fear is actually running you Right? right. Instead of you running your own life and just being, um, feeling secure in that, in that relationship. It sounds, um, to me, it sounds like there's such a fixation around shape-shifting and yes. how, to, and that really is essentially what people-pleasing is. It's how can I manipulate the situation to get you to say certain things or do certain things through my own shape-shifting? And that is a very different way to show up in a relationship than if you were to just genuinely be enjoying your time with them, right? Like it's a Absolutely. different mental focus of what's happening. So if every single thing is around, how do I keep them? How do I get them to do this? How do, maybe if I do this with myself or blah, blah, if that's the focus, then you're not actually being in relationship. And what I'll also say is if you're continuing to attract individuals who aren't healthy, it's going to make your job even harder. It like becomes even more convoluted because even though you might be in that sort of love sick or love addicted place, that doesn't mean that it's on you. It doesn't mean that their behavior is acceptable. It doesn't mean that their abuse or their gaslighting or anything like that is just your penance to pay for, you know, your spongy years. It doesn't mean that it can be both. It can be, I have recognized I've gotten myself into this pattern and it's incredibly unacceptable how that person treated me. Cause I know that's Absolutely. kind of, kind of your situation. You're you know, yeah. I point. mean, it's, it's not to, none of this is ever to justify your partner's behavior if it's poor behavior, but it's, it's also equally not for you to like, you know, like, you know, take out the whip and start self-flagellating for, exactly. you know, being broken. And this is actually just like, we, we do attract these situations. Our relationships are our teachers. So we do attract these situations to teach us if you're a really hard-headed learner like I am, you do it repeatedly until you wake up one day, <laughs> Yeah, right? I had to hit my relationship rock bottom for this to really smack me on the head. And for me, you know, that was going through, you know, relationship after relationship or, you know, attachment after attachment that was not healthy until I got to the point where I literally attracted an abusive situation mm -hmm. and I stayed there because I was not only made to believe that it was me that was broken, but I believed that. So of course, like that was like what came and that was my biggest, hugest teacher of all. Like I don't even have any ill feeling towards him at all. 
but I had to, that had to happen. Right. So, you know, first you get a brick or first you get a whisper, then you get a, you know, a little tap on the shoulder and then you get the brick <laughs> in the head and that he was my brick in the head. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this isn't to shame anyone or to, you know, it's always oh, because, it, you know, you should be punished, like you said, for that, those spongy years, right? It's like, no, these people are your wake up call. Yeah. And if you're ever in a situation, whether it's a friendship a relationship, you know, a, an employeeship, whatever it is, and that person is, make, is, is affecting your self-esteem, that is one of your first clues, right? That there, there, there might be some manipulation happening there. You might be buying into something negative about yourself, but if they are, you know, putting you down or they're doing that, for me, it was the classic, like, uh, you know, it was a build you up and how amazing you are and then tear you down and then build you up and then tear you mm -hmm. down. Like though, where you start to literally question yourself, right? That's not a situation that you need to stay in. Cause that is like one of your first signs of like a toxic relationship. Right. Um, and if you're finding that you're trying, like, I love that you said shapeshifter. I use that word a lot. I was the master molder. Right. And you see this on teenage girls, right. You see this in like, Oh, what kind of music does he like? Oh, I'm going to like the same music. Oh my or gosh. Just, oh, I did that. Like that baseball team. Like we, you know, we do this as teenage girls. This is where some of the shame comes in. Right. Cause when you're like a grown ass woman and you're, you're not, maybe you're not following the same baseball team they love, but you're doing other things to mold or shape shift yourself. It's like, Oh my God, I'm acting like that. You know, that silly teenage girl, but that's because she never, really developed out of that, right? To develop into her own independence and autonomy, et cetera. So it's, it's just being aware. And if you've done that, if you're listening right now, and maybe you're single right now, so you're, you're not dealing with this because you're single, but you go back and I have my clients um, go over and, and really do um, uh, almost like a, an accountability checklist, but really go over the menu of their entire past relationships and just pick out where they may have had these behaviors, where they may have done this, because it starts to help you almost mapping out how it is that you act and be and relate when you're in a relationship so that you can almost spot that stuff coming up before, because these are like habitual patterns or behaviors. And like we said before, a lot of this is unconsciously driven. So once you can map out how you related in the past you can actually start to nip some of that behavior in the bud. You can even, even with some of the people that, you know, you may have been attracted to in the past, you can start to really see like, oh, that's interesting. Like I, I I'm very, I'm a big fan of using dating as a classroom mm. and not just as a show up and have fun and, you know, whatever, but actually like, what can we learn from myself? What do I learn from this person? And, and you can do all of that and start to really get a, a handle on how you relate. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking too about, the evolution of that teenage girl and how I have so much compassion for that, that version of myself too, because I think about all of this stuff that we've been discussing and how it's so easy for us to get to this place, you know, in our thirties, forties, fifties and beyond and look back and go, Oh my gosh, I'm acting like this teenage girl. But when we think about that teenage girl, what was she informed by? She was informed by all of these messages that we get in society, all of this bullshit that we've gotten from uh, media or from Disney or all these. It, I was just watching a show last night and it was infuriating to me. It was set in the 90s and I was like, that's fucking accurate around how... <laughs> first of all, notions of like girls mature faster than boys. It's like, no, not really. We're just learned that we needed to take responsibility for everybody else's happiness early on. The idea that, okay, if you, and again, this is very heteronormative, but if you are a dude who is interested in a girl, you be mean to her. Yeah. And we get this message that like, okay, if a guy is mean to you, that means he likes you. Mm -hmm. I don't know what more disordered message a teenage <laughs> girl could fucking get. Totally. And so, totally. like, so compounding all of these messages, like having some, some real genuine compassion for a lot of this stuff that's outside of ourselves, that it's not necessarily this whole message that we're talking about here today is not about, holy shit, I'm flawed. It is, 
oh my God, I've developed a very specific method of coping mechanisms based off of the messages that I've received about love. Now, what do I want to do about that? So when we see a relationship that's extremely toxic or an individual who's very abusive to you, it's not about going shame on you for tolerating that. It's about going, what do you want to do about that toleration? Mm, What, What feels powerful to you? So, you know, I know we danced a little bit around attachment styles. I would love to just delineate for everybody listening. If they're not familiar with it, there's a great book called attached, um, oh, we'll link, change my life. <laughs> it will link to it in, in the show notes that, that highlights all of this, but can you give everybody just sort of a synopsis of the three most common? I know there's an, a fourth, that's kind of an outlier. It's yep. a very, very rare, uh, individual, but can you um, just break that down for, for folks listening? Totally. And I wanted to, just before I do that, I wanted to pin what you just said previous, because th- that goes back to how we started the interview about using your singlehood as a waiting room. Like mm. if you are using it as a waiting room, then what you're doing is literally just continually perpetuating the unconscious behavior. But if you're using it to actually get curious, not I'm wounded and I'm broken, but actually get curious and do some work, do some reading, do some research, work with somebody, right? So that you're actually using it as a preparation for the next relationship. Uh, Again, not from a place of I'm broken and I need to be fixed, but from a place of curiosity, it's like, wow, you know, I just kind of showed up the last, you know, three relationships, I showed up in this way and this happened. That's interesting. Where does that come from? Right. And, you know, I talk a lot about the inner child. I do a lot of inner child work with people, but I also do a lot of teenage inner teenage girl work with people because that's where, you know, we, we could really, uh, we could have flipped a switch, but because of, like you said, all this stuff, we couldn't. So there's three main, uh, attachment styles. I love that you quoted the book attached. I literally, I joke that they need to cut me a commission because I recommend (laughs) it to all my clients. It is one of the books that completely changed my life and had me breathe a sigh of relief and validation and really understand that I learned all of this stuff and I can unlearn it. And that's the power that we have. So Obviously, we want the just the word itself sounds beautiful, secure. So the secure attachment style, as the name suggests, like these people, they thrive in relationship. They they thrive in being connected to someone. It doesn't feel threatening. It doesn't bring up anxiety. They really thrive. Now, are they all master experts in relationships? No, because we never grew up with a manual. <laughs> but they they're not threatened by, or um, it doesn't provoke anxiety for them to be in a connection, committed relationship. The next attachment style is anxious, and anxious. We kind of touched on it before. Um, there, there's a lot of deep, deeper fear of uh, abandonment, and and uh, that is driven by this style. And I also want to say, because this drives me nuts too, when you're dating and you're like, this is where that, that group with all the attachment styles makes me nuts. And people are like, I'm an attack, I'm an anxious and, and this happened. And then, and, and I guess it must've just brought up my style and okay. It's like when you're dating and there's no commitment and you get anxious because you really like this person and they didn't return your call, that does not mean you have anxious attachment style. That just, that's normal. (laughs) It's like, Amy, if I really wanted to go to lunch with you and like you weren't returning my calls, I might be a little bit anxious. That's just normal. Doesn't mean you have anxious attachment style. It's just, it's just what it is. It's a situation. Your style shows up when you're in a committed relationship, when you've decided this we're exclusive and we're in a committed relationship. So that anxious person will be triggered by things like, you know, spits or, or, or spats or fights that are, you know, oh my God, like, you know, what does he, what does he or she think of me now? Like, are they, are they mad at me? Are they, are they, um, are they going to leave me or they don't return your call fast enough? Or maybe, you know, you're texting and you're in the middle of a text conversation and suddenly you just, you know, they're, they're going about their life, you know, at the grocery store, they don't even think about it, but you're over on this end worrying that, oh my gosh, something happened. And So it's very, very driven by anxiety. Um, There's, there's a, it's, you don't get that sense of, 
just being like in this happy, healthy, held situation. There's a lot of anxiousness and there's a lot of acting out in that anxiety too that happens in, in those, in that anxious style. So the avoidance style is marked by someone who maybe didn't have abandonment or neglect in their childhood, but they had a lot of uh, early adulting. So they had a lot of where they were caregivers for their parental figures or their caregivers and they, it was a flip switch, right? Where they became the caregiver. There's a fear there. The, by the way, both of these styles, all three of these styles, they want, like Maslow's Law, right? They want connection. They want love. They mm-hmm. want the relationship. It's just that that dynamic triggers something different for them. So for the avoidant, their fear is that they will be engulfed in that relationship. They will lose themselves somehow. They will Um, it'll become too much for them. They'll become overly responsible. So when that triggers in them, instead of drawing closer, like the anxious person might, is they withdraw. Mm -hmm. They try and regain their sense of autonomy. They try and regain their sense of space. And and, and this push-pull can happen between those two. The fourth one you mentioned, and believe it or not, there's subcategories of each of these. Um, But the fourth one that is actually not as rare as you might think is a disorganized attachment. And that's actually what I have or what I was or what I'm working on or what I'm transcending. Right. (laughs) So all of that, because I don't want, I don't like the label either, but a disorganized attachment is kind of a blend of both. So they're they're They've got the anxious stuff happening and that can easily be triggered, but then they're also, they can also, you know, once, once they settle into whatever the dynamic is that they're in, um, they could, they could be triggered with their avoidance stuff. Right. So there's that, losing of themselves and, and kind of, um, you know, self-abandoning, et cetera. It, it's kind of tricky because um, the anxious person will also have a lot of sort of self-abandoning behaviors, like giving up their workout routine and hanging out with their friends. And Cause again, we talked about before the relationship goes on the pedestal and there's everything. It's all about the relationship. Right. Um, and if you, you know, you're curious, I used to actually have an attachment style quiz on my website um, that I've, I've just recently, cause I'm moving things around, took down, but you can actually Google, um, attachment style quizzes everywhere. Mm-hmm. I have a quiz on my, uh, website. If you want to find out, you know, if you fall into this category of lovesick, which leans more towards an anxious style, sure. um, that you can go and take. Um, but it's, you know, there's so many different quizzes out there and that disorganized one is, it it can be a tricky one, right? Because depending on who you're with, um, it it could get triggered differently. Um, and that was also a relief reading about that one. So those are the four kind of main ones that people talk about. You know, I, I really think it's, I love that you brought up this idea of over identification of things like this, because it's so easy with like Enneagram or human designers. <laughs> I'm a seven. Hor- I'm a Gemini. I'm horoscope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I think, I think all of that stuff can be really illuminating and enlightening. And I enjoy that. And that's not the only thing that you are. I think that's, exactly. that's the big piece of like, and I'm also all these other things and I'm able to transcend to use your word, uh, to move beyond some of these things that, that aren't serving me. So I, without a shadow of a doubt have always been an anxious attachment style until I met my partner. So I can look back at all of the relationships that I had prior to Mr. Smith and And I, it was the constant rumination. It was the fear. It was the, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Giving up stuff, canceling plans to make sure I was available at all times. And so the reason why I wanted to bring this up was because I do think that it's absolutely possible to move into a secure attachment style. I think my part, my partner has always been secure, secure as fuck. I don't know how or why, like, because, well, I do know why, because his mom was unbelievable and just such a huge, beautiful force in his life. So, but what that does mean though, is when there's any rough waters in my life or in other, even outside of my marriage, sometimes my anxious attachment style gets kicked up and I will very, uh, 
consciously turn to him and say, hey, I'm in a place where I'm feeling a bit vulnerable or I'm feeling a bit um, needy. And I think needy actually gets a bad rap. We have oh, a, don't get me started on needy girl. We, we did a <laughs> whole episode on that. Uh, but then I can lean in and just ask for, ask for what I need and say like, Hey, if you're up for a little bit of extra assurance over the next couple of days, I've been feeling really, um, like my belly's exposed a bit and right. having words like that, having phrases like that, like, and then having somebody who can meet that and reciprocate that. And you can have a conversation about it and and know that if he's drained or not up for it, or, you know, is like, I will do my absolute best, but I am so in the weeds with work, uh, to not take that as another trigger for the anxious attachment. Absolutely. So I, you know, it's not set in stone. It's not something that you can't vacillate between the various different ones of them. Like there's ways that I think I'm very avoidant with other relationships in my life versus anxious, you know? So, um, again, I think it can get kind of, you're never just one thing. Yeah. And, and I, I love that you just use your personal example because the, I mean, the goal is for all of us, you know, no matter where you land on that spectrum is that you are working towards a more secure attachment. And so first you might have to do that on your own within yourself before you meet someone who helps you get there. And that ability and almost permission to, to say, like, I've done that with my partner too. Like, babe, I'm feeling really insecure today. And like, I just, I feel like, you know, I just, I need a little, I need a a little extra cuddle. And not only to be, have the permission to say that in a relationship, but giving yourself that permission, right? But also for that person to respond in a way that's either, you know, it's really crazy right now, I'll do my best, you know, and 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 you having enough, done enough work on yourself that you cannot take that personally, right? But for them to even turn around and say, absolutely, like, come here, like, yes. You know, there's a little bit of, um, and, and, you know, of course I'm a feminist and I love feminism, but this is where I think we've gone off the rails with independence a little bit too much is we really don't understand interdependence. And that's literally yes. a beautiful example of interdependence, right? It's like, I'm kind of low here. I need to lean on you. It's like, great, I'm here. Here, that's I'm right. gonna back you up. And that and that's the beauty of that. But I don't think we really get even taught to have that be okay to yeah. ask for something like that. I had a therapist years ago say to me, I was going on and on. I just broken up with someone. I was like, I'm so needy. And that's why he left me because I'm needy. And I was just going on and on. And she just, she just let me cry it out. And then she said, what if being needy only meant that you had needs that weren't being met? Mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, I mean, that changed my entire life and my entire perception of needy. Because right. it's like, wait a second, that just means that I have needs that aren't being met either by myself or my partner. Right. And, you know, kind of drop the judgment on needy, but it's it, it really is like developing this relationship to all the parts of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you mentioned the, the Enneagram and you know your horoscope and stuff. Even people that are Enneagram experts or like astrologers will say to you, you're not just the one thing. Right. You, you are all of it. You're all the stars. You're, you know, you're all the, the numbers because that's the whole point, right? Is that, you know, I think, and this is probably why I'm so passionate about relationship work, because I think it is such an incubator for helping you work on the wholeness of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you're not just the one thing and you're not like definitely not broken. And just that one label that you're never going to, you're always going to be that label. It's like, no, you were more anxious and now you're more secure. And every now and again, the anxiousness comes up and you're, and you have that, you know, beautiful relationship where you can go to your partner and say, Hey, I need this right now. I yeah. love that. I love that. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> so I feel like I could talk to you forever. Giovanna. Uh, (laughs) But so you've mentioned the book. It's called Love Well. It is phenomenal. You must get your hands on it. So tell everybody how they can learn more about you, your book, where do you hang out, all the things. Yeah. So I'm, I I do hang out on Facebook. I'm predominantly on Instagram. I'm at lovewell underscore coach. The book is literally everywhere now. And we, we had a little bit of a printing debacle at the beginning, but we're good now. It's everywhere now. And uh, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. I'm at lovewell.coach. So 
lovewell.coach is the website. Um, you can find the quiz there that I mentioned. Uh, you can find where to buy the book there, et cetera. Um, send me an email, say hi, get in touch. I'd love your feedback from this episode. Um, and those are the main places that I hang out. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll be sure to to put all of that in the show notes. I will let you go so you can wash your hair out because yeah, we- <laughs> girl, the pink is becoming fuchsia. Gotta go. We don't want you to stain your scalp <laughs> or anything. All right, my friend, thank you for picking up. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Live well and love well. Thanks for calling. I loved it. Love the conversation. Likewise. All right. Bye, my friend. There you have it. Giovanna is so much fun. I do so hope that you check out her book, Love Well. We'll be sure to link it in the show notes, which you can find at amygreensmith.com slash EP439. That's where you can always find the episode notes. Anytime a show says it'll be in the show notes, it's just in the description of that episode, wherever you're listening, you should be able to find find that on, on any number of platforms. So be thinking about what were your major takeaways from today and what is one very simple action step that you can take to start uncovering and creating some freedom around how you engage in relationships. So that might be as simple as picking up her book or following her on Instagram or telling people to stop trying to hook you up with people or, you know, it could be any number of things. It might be even jumping into the book attached or exploring possibly your own inventory. Like Giovanna was saying, how you've engaged in relationships over your lifetime up until now. Please be sure to take some action. I would love to hear from you. Scoot over to Instagram. You can find me under the handle at hey. Amy Green Smith. Green has no E. It's just like the color. Come hang out. Find the meme for this episode and let me know what your biggest takeaway was. I would love to hear from you. And stay tuned for next week when we talk to Ms. Alana Pratt. I think you're going to love this episode. She's an intimacy expert and definitely is going to have some juicy nuggets for us to jump into. So until then, I will see you around these parts next week. And be sure to remember, you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and tell the bold-faced truth. Peace. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding. But I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you. Bye.